This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Spiritual Preparation for the Challenges of 2021 As each year draws to its close, there is always a good deal of speculation about what the new year will bring. The chattering clique of pundits use such speculation to fill the slow news days that surround the holidays. Our social fabric sustained much damage during 2020. Leftists successfully used the COVID crisis to take control over many aspects of our lives that would have been impossible under normal circumstances. The political process grew even more polarized than it was previously. Antifa and BLM dominated the national conversation, spreading a new racism under an anti-racist banner. The education system all but closed down. The return to order moment is not going to make specific predictions. We can, however, look to the years ahead and make solid suggestions for whatever does come. In our first essay, Mr. John Horvat talks about the need for traditionalists to resist the plans that the leftists have in mind. He does this in his article, We Need a Great Reset, Not the One You're Thinking Of. There is a major plan for change in society that is called the Great Reset. Rarely have I ever seen a plan so openly laid out to the public. Time magazine devoted a whole issue to the subject. Most major corporation CEOs, the Davos crowd, have signed on to the proposal. This is beyond conspiracy theory. It's becoming policy. The Great Reset is the brainchild of Klaus Schwab and is sponsored by the World Economic Forum. He sees it as a way of quote-unquote reimagining capitalism to make it a greener, more equitable wealth creation system. It stresses the idea of a stakeholder capitalism that considers the interests of all society rather than a shareholder version that concentrates on the profits of investors. The Great Reset comes at a time of the COVID crisis, which is too good to waste. Many people are favorably disposed to its immediate and radical proposals to change the world. As much as I hate agreeing with the Davos crowd, I too think we need a Great Reset. We need a Great Reset because our present systems are frenetically intemperate. They compel people to want everything instantly and effortlessly to the detriment of the common good. A Great Reset will help us deal with the breakdown of many social networks based on the family. There is nothing to replace them. Moreover, we are in a state of polarization and crisis, and the COVID-19 outbreak only makes things worse. Something must be done. The time is ripe for a major change in society. We cannot sustain the present system for much longer unless we change direction. We need a Great Reset. But it's not Schwab's Great Reset. We can say that history revolves around Great Resets. There are times when nations deteriorate and cannot get anything done. They need to make crucial decisions about which way they will go. Usually, a crisis triggers a decision that determines the nation's future. I further hold that there are only two resets possible, no more 
no less. The reset details might vary according to the circumstances, but the choices on the direction are limited to two. The two options are predictably one toward the good and the other toward evil. We have now reached a point in our history where we must choose which reset to follow. The decision is not if there is to be a reset, but when. This decision is forced upon us by Schwab's Great Reset. Its promoters openly say that everyone must be on board, like it or not. All the rich and powerful have signed off on it. Schwab claims his reset will lead down the sure path to a better future. For all the ballyhoo about this new program, Schwab's plan is remarkably unoriginal. It reflects old socialist thinking about humanity, society, and industry. Indeed, the left always progresses by recycling old and moldy ideas. The Great Reset rehashes leftist notions of grand central planning, egalitarian social structuring, and changing human nature that have failed over the decades. The danger of this plan is its deceptiveness. It disguises its goals under a pretext of quote-unquote reimagining capitalism. Schwab's Great Reset is total. It calls for the world to quote act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts and working conditions, unquote. Every country must participate, and all industries must be transformed. There is no opt-out. The main components of the Great Reset consist of global policies to transform the world. It would incorporate a climate change agenda with broad powers to end fossil fuels, levy taxes, and decide policy. It would promote an equality program of identity politics, which calls for diversity and inclusivity. The plan will enlist big tech services to, quote, harness the innovations of the fourth industrial revolution to support the public good, especially by addressing health and social challenges, unquote, in light of the COVID-19 crisis. Like all such brave new world dystopian visions, the Great Reset omits any reference to morality. It tolerates every kind of sin and persecutes those who uphold norms of virtue. It is a world without morals or God, and it will lead to chaos. There is a better reset option that will take our society toward good. That option is not proposed by any Klaus Schwab, but by the mother of God at Fatima. The Fatima message proposes a great reset tailored to our times. It is remarkably similar to the other reset, since it repeats a common theme from the past— calls for a complete transformation of society, and is addressed to all nations. However, the similarities end there. When the Blessed Mother appeared to the three shepherd children at Fatima in 1917, she spoke to a world in crisis. She called upon a sinful world to repent and convert, to reset. She provided a completely different program to effect this reset that consists of prayer, penance, and amendment of life. She foretold the tragic consequences of not following her message that we have seen fulfilled. 
Yet worse things are to come if we continue disregarding the message. Finally, Our Lady validated her message with a great miracle in which the sun danced in the sky before 70,000 people. She proved that she had the wherewithal to make great changes if people would only listen. The sad state of this world calls for a great reset. We could say that the history of the world since Fatima has been a battle between resets, one proposed by Our Lady and others proposed by communism, socialism, Nazism, secularism, Islamism, and other totalitarian ideologies. Leftist options always propose totalitarian solutions that promise to transform everything without a return to moral living and virtue. Such man-centered schemes have failed miserably. That is why the latest reset option proposed by Schwab must be rejected in its entirety, since it will not address the problem of our iniquities, but only make them worse. It will introduce the terrible technological oversight of a big brother, not the solicitous gaze of a loving mother. Our Lady asked for a great reset, whereby we might reorient our priorities to the God that created us. She calls for a transformation of society where Christ would be king again. Although the entire world's power and money are arrayed against her, the ultimate victory is hers even if humanity refuses her advice. What makes her proposal attractive is that she has promised us that her immaculate heart will triumph in the end, regardless of our follies. With her victory being a given, we are outright foolish to ignore her. This concludes, we need a great reset, not the one you're thinking of. Much of the agitation that came from Antifa and BLM centered around something called critical race theory. This pernicious doctrine has long been a part of the pseudo-academic world dominated by relativism. Its proponents took their false doctrines to the streets during the warmer months of 2020 and made deep penetrations into the American conscience. As winter fell, their tactics became less dramatic. However, Only a simpleton would think that the agitation is at an end. Mr. Edwin Benson looks at their past demands and future moves in his essay, Could Critical Race Theory Become the Law of the Land? Critical race theory holds the society as quote-unquote structurally racist, and only its wholesale restructuring can fix the problem. Many schools and workplaces have embraced the idea by implementing training programs. Employees are browbeaten into accepting the concept and then forced to take their own quote-unquote responsibility in perpetrating a racist society. Those courageous enough to resist this heavy-handed attempt at mind control are scorned and rebuked in front of their colleagues. Now the critical race theory is moving out of the classroom and workplace and into the courts. While some radical judges and quote-unquote progressive prosecutors embrace critical race theory, their actual impact on the legal system itself is limited. This is due in part to the English-slash-American system called common law, which places great emphasis on stare decisis, the idea that today's decisions are determined mainly by legal precedents. 
Insofar as stare decisis adheres to tradition, it protects the nation from sweeping and sudden changes in the law. Thus, radical ideologues hate that system and seek to destroy it. A proposal by the Nashville Bar Association, NBA, will introduce the new theory into legal practice. It calls for all lawyers in Tennessee to submit to an annual training in critical race theory. Currently, the Tennessee State Supreme Court, which sets such rules, requires lawyers to take 15 hours of continuing legal education, CLE, each year. If this rule prevails, a radical social revolution will become part of the legal tradition. The Tennessee Star quotes the NBA petition. Rooting out systemic racism, gender bias, and all forms of discrimination within the legal system requires active efforts by all of those involved, including the judiciary and attorneys. Lawyers cannot fulfill their duties without ongoing training, education, and active engagement in the areas of diversity, inclusion, equity, and elimination of bias." Unquote. These phrases could come right out of the Critical Race Theory Handbook. The new demand for training changes the criteria that the law should be quote-unquote colorblind, the civil rights movement's standard. Now, lawyers must become activists and root out anything that offends the radicals. Consider this description of the legal implications of critical race theory found on the Harvard University website called The Bridge. Quote, one key focus of critical race theorists is a regime of white supremacy and privilege maintained despite the rule of law and the constitutional guarantee of equal protection of the laws. Agreeing with critical theorists and many feminists that law itself is not a neutral tool but instead part of the problem, critical race scholars identify inadequacies of conventional civil rights litigation." Unquote. The social unrest shaking the country gives some idea of how radicals envision a legal system without, quote, a regime of white supremacy and privilege, unquote. It would reflect perspectives that hold that the, quote, law itself is not a neutral tool, but instead part of the problem, unquote. Some indications of this vision are the demands of the radicals who promoted critical race theory at the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, CHAZ, in Seattle over the summer. The list is long and includes 1. Abolish the police department and the attached court system. 2. Ban use of armed force by police. 3. Abolish juvenile detention centers. 4. Reparations for victims of police brutality. Five, retrials for all people of color in prison for violent crimes. And six, end to evictions for non-payment of rent. Indeed, such a justice system designed around these tenants would be no justice system at all. No one would enforce the law and no one would be punished for breaking it. Citizens would be unsafe under such a regime. In the summer of 2020, the group promoting these ideals took over a portion of a major American city. Their opinions were taken seriously by Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin and Washington Governor Jay Inslee. 
No state court should dignify this radical doctrine by forcing every lawyer to study these radical ideas against order. Of course, the only real answer to the problems raised by racial issues is a return to the traditional teachings of the Catholic Church that informed Christian civilization. United by the love of God and each other, the Church has always held out the promise of dignity for all, regardless of race or ethnicity. The Marxist roots of critical race theory, motivated by hate and extreme egalitarianism, can never create the unity that they pretend to espouse. This concludes, Could critical race theory become the law of the land? The relativist and Marxist world that spawned both Antifa and BLM is full of lies that masquerade as wisdom. That disguise persuades many people to believe them. Others, dominated by fear of the false ideas, latch on to another set of falsehoods. It is critical that Christians embrace neither set of falsehoods. Recently, Rod Dreher's new book, Live Not by Lies, has been adopted by some as a way out of the relativist's chaotic world. However, his ideas have major flaws as well. Mr. John Horvat considers the book's shortcomings in his review, Why Christians Must Not Retreat in the Culture War, But Wage a God-Centered Counter-Revolution. We live in a time dominated by lies. The media and culture peddle so many things that deny the truth. We are told that some men are really women, and some women are really men. Unborn babies are not human. The family is whatever we want it to be. Fake news is everywhere. Lies have become a part of our lives, making it surreal as we flee from reality and ultimately from God. Rod Dreher's new book, Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, presents itself as a handbook for our time of lies. The title is based on a speech by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where he urged his fellow Russians not to live by the lies of the deceitful Soviet regime. He presents Soviet-era dissidents as models to help us deal with our lies. Thus, the book is a chronicle of interviews with those Eastern European dissidents who survived the Cold War by developing ways of fighting against communist lies. Their testimony and resistance can be very inspiring, for they endured much to be faithful. Mr. Dreyer affirms that these same tactics might be applied in our Western society in decay. There are unmistakable signs that our postmodern world is heading in the direction of what the author calls soft totalitarianism. He notes that, like decadent czarist Russia, our society is marked by loneliness and social atomization lost faith in hierarchies and institutions, and unbridled sexuality. Our world is falling apart, Mr. Dreyer claims. Quote, the old world of classical liberalism is dying throughout the Western world, but its successor has not yet been born. Unquote. In its place, Soft totalitarianism finds its expression in the social justice warriors who seek change through identity politics. Quote-unquote woke 
capitalist corporations, enforce and survey workers to root out thought crimes deemed racist, homophobic, transphobic, and any other kind of phobia currently in vogue. A union of big business and big brother will lead to a terrifying futuristic brave new world that leaves little room for Christian dissent. As might be expected, Mr. Dreyer, the author of The Benedict Option, proposes a variation of his theme of forming small communities to wait out the terrible gathering storm of a high-tech neo-barbarian age. He does not use the term Benedict Option to describe these mechanisms of survival. The Eastern European equivalents were less formal and smaller groups that we might call micro-Benedict Options. Those disappointed by the Benedict Option will also be disappointed by this micro-version. The author describes well the monolithic unity of a revolution that threatens all those who defend God's law. However, he can suggest no opposing unity of a counter-revolution to combat this revolution. Just as his Benedict Option tends to isolate and shatter reactions into a thousand options, this microversion shatters the resistance yet further into tiny shards of defiance. Thus, the book's collection of guidelines might have some helpful counsels for those shattered shards, but it is not a tactical handbook for engaging in the culture war. There is nothing new about relying on the family, religion, solidarity, and intermediary groups, since they are the God-given institutions that are valid for surviving in all situations, not just the catacomb-like world found in communist Eastern Europe. Perhaps the most perplexing problem with Mr. Dreyer's solution is his desire to embrace all under his solidarity banner. We are asked to, quote, throw off the chains of solitude and find the freedom that awaits us in fellowship. The testimony of communist dissidents is clear. Only in solidarity with others can we find the spiritual and communal strength to resist, unquote. His small solidarity groups build bonds of brotherhood across denominational lines, including secular and liberal allies, quote, other religions and no religion at all, unquote. These groups are all at once catechetical, ministerial, and organizational, replacing institutional church leaders unable to fulfill their roles. It appears the unifying factor of these groups is the obvious recognition of the communist lie, which can be defined as the absence of truth. However, since this absent truth is left undefined, problems set in. Mr. Dreyer leaves us with a liberal smorgasbord of beliefs and unbeliefs from which to craft a response to the lie. However, this response is not enough. Solidarity alone will not suffice. Indeed, the Eastern European models we are offered failed to resist the onslaught of Western postmodern culture that has corrupted their post-communist societies. In the effort to construct small communities of solidarity, we must never lose sight of the bigger picture. There must be an effort to understand our present crisis and engage in the culture war that threatens us. We must construct a counter-revolution, counting on the grace of God to help us. We must never lose sight of our desire for victory over evil, despite the obstacles we face. Instead of the subjective ramblings of Protestant existentialist Soren Kierkegaard, whom Mr. Dreyer cites, 
We need the triumphal promises of Our Lady at Fatima. And that is what is missing in Mr. Dreyer's formula for the fight against the enemies of God, be they communists or postmoderns. There is no unified truth or end presented that can give rise to a new Christian civilization. This concludes the essay, Why Christians Must Not Retreat in the Culture War But Wage a God-Centered Counter-Revolution and the podcast, Spiritual Preparation for the Challenges of 2021. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the ideological message behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2020 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.